Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Personal Injury Pod from St. John's Chambers. I'm James Marrick. And I'm Rob Mills. Today's podcast is directed at material contribution and clinical negligence. It is, and it's quite an ambitious topic, James, in many ways for a 30-minute podcast because it's so complicated. Uh, The cornerstone cases, particularly in relation to material contribution, are not new, and they range from about 8 to 15 years ago. The likes of Bailey in the MOD, Williams and Bermuda, Sido John in central Manchester, and even Fairchild are probably known to most of us, although we'll quickly remind ourselves of the core principles today. But in the last couple of years, there have been a number of judgments, some from the High Court, which have sought to set out the law on causation in clinical negligence and really taught in general in a way which at first glance looks incompatible with those well-known authorities. Excellent, Rob. Well, I I think what we need to do today is try to give an update on the the case law as it stands and seek to draw from that some sensible conclusions and learning points for day-to-day practice. Uh, And I think the starting point for that's got to be the basic building blocks, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So... I'll run through those quickly, James, at the risk of going back to basics. I think it will be helpful for us to do so, so that we see exactly how the the newer authorities are approaching the building blocks of material contribution. Forgive me for starting off basic, but we have to reiterate the but-for test, because it's that that's been remoulded to some degree in recent times, and it pays to remind ourselves of where it starts before uh, the judicial moulding begins. Uh, The basic position, as we all know, in every tortious claim with a PI or PLIMNEG, is the but-for test. And there's an erroneous assumption that the two have different tests for causation. Uh, They don't. It's all taught. And certainly it it may be the case that regularly occurring factual scenarios in clinical negligence make it look as if the test varies, but it doesn't. It's all the same law. If the claimant proves a breach of duty and proves that but-for the breach, uh, he or she would not have sustained damage, then they'll be compensated for that damage. That's the foundational tortious principle. When the situation becomes complicated, it is when two factors may have been, or in fact were, the cause of the damage in question. So one's the breach of duty and one's something else, whether negligent or non-negligent. And the first question is, can it be shown on balance one of the causes was the cause? In other words, can the but-for test be fulfilled for the breach of duty cause? If it can, then the causation equation is a simple one. But often it can't be proved either way, particularly in clinical negligence. And sometimes where there are two possible causes, we get uncertainty as to whether one, the breach in isolation, would have caused the damage. And in clinical negligence, that's usually scientific uncertainty. If the effect of the second non-breach factor being present muddies the water, so to speak, so that the but-for test cannot be fulfilled either way in relation to the breach of duty factor, then we have to move on to another stage of considerations. In other words, It will be the case in this scenario that the damage or all of the damage might or might not have occurred in the absence of the breach. And then you move to the next stage. And this is where we come into material contribution arguments, isn't it, Rob? Um, Particularly clinical negligence causation. And it can confuse lawyers and judges alike. I think that's some of the problems that have come out in the case law in recent years. Now, is it the case that the combination of the two or more causes has led to the injury... In that case, the cause is accumulative. An example, I think, Rob, might be sepsis. Yeah, it could be sepsis, James. And that is the the key question. Are the causal factors cumulative? So sepsis might be caused in part by an infection, not as a result of negligence, and in part by a negligent delay in the treatment of that infection, which then worsens it and leads to the sepsis. So those two causative factors 
operating together, infection and delay to result in severe sepsis causing lasting damage. That would be an example. And it's different to cases where there are multiple possible causes of injury which are operating in isolation. So rather than being cumulative, they're separate, distinct causes, not working together, each of which could have caused the damage, which is the subject of the claim. And I think the case law tells us, Rob, the causes are separate and the negligent cause cannot be shown to have caused the damage on the but-for basis, then the starting point is that the claim fails in causation. That's right. That was the, the, the Wilshire case. We probably all learned about it at law school. That was the baby who was blind. Uh, and there were lots of different reasons why the baby might have been blind. One of them was excess oxygen provided negligently. Uh, but there were multiple other different causes which could have led to the blindness, which were non-negligent and totally separate from the oxygen. And because the claimant couldn't show that on balance it was the oxygen which was the cause, then in effect they were in a minefield with multiple different possibilities and no evidence that there'd been any contribution at all from the oxygen. So that's the distinction. In those sort of scenarios, the claim will fail. Causation is not established. You don't get to material contribution. You need to have cumulative causes working together in order to get over that hurdle. That's stage two. If we have cumulative causes, we then get to stage three. And that raises, I think, the very knotty question, Rob, doesn't it, of the divisible, indivisible injuries distinction. Can you help us with that? I can. So in order to get over stage three and prove your material contribution, we need to understand the effect, I suppose, of this doctrine in different scenarios. So the divisible and indivisible distinction, as you say, this, again, confuses lawyers, it confuses judges, And actually, it's been part of the recent confusion, which we'll come on to in the High Court case law of the last year or two. It's worth reminding ourselves because the effect of material contribution differs significantly depending on whether the injury is divisible or indivisible. What's a divisible injury? So divisible injuries are those where the severity of the condition is linked to the extent or the dose of the causal agent which causes the condition. Indivisible injuries aren't dose related at all. They can occur from one exposure or one negligence act. And once they are in motion, as it were, as an injury, then the extent of exposure doesn't affect it at all. It will progress on and you've either got it or you don't. We'll see divisible injuries quite a lot in industrial disease litigation. That's the classic area where where the distinction has been looked at. But again, important to note that the law for industrial disease is exactly the same as it is for clinical negligence. These are rules of tort. They do not change as we move across disciplines. Here's an example. A claimant might develop asbestosis from being exposed to asbestos. Asbestosis becomes more severe the more exposure you have to asbestos fibres. It is therefore, in that sense, a divisible condition. Contrast that to another asbestos disease, mesothelioma, also caused by exposure to to the substance, but it's not dose-related. You've either got it or you don't. You can develop it from one fibre of asbestos, and once you've got it, It doesn't matter how much more asbestos you're exposed to. It's not a a dose-related condition. It's an indivisible injury. So how does that affect material contribution in those different scenarios? Well, what I would say is a claimant for a divisible injury is only going to be recovering from each defendant their contribution to the injury, however big or small. In the case of an indivisible injury, if material contribution is established, even if it's clear that there have been other non-negligent causal factors at work, then the claimant should recover in full against the defendant for the entirety of the loss. As we'll see in the recent cases that we'll come on to, that's caused a lot of judicial confusion. We'll try and unpick that as we go through. 
in the context then of a material contribution, how significant does a contribution have to be before it's considered material? Yeah, that's a good question. So the answer is it's not a very high bar. The official definition is it has to be more than minimal. There's a limited amount we can discuss in this podcast today, and there's lots of case law on this. But in essence, in terms of assessing the damages, once you've got your material contribution, if the injury is divisible, claimant gets part of it. If it's indivisible, they get all of it. And the contribution really has to only be more than minimal in the context of the different causal factors which are feeding into the injury as a whole. I would suggest that once you've got once you've got past stage two and there's scientific uncertainty as to whether the negligent cause alone would have led to the injury, it's almost difficult to think of many examples where in that scenario that, that causal factor is going to be minimal. Because if you've got scientific uncertainty as to whether it could have done the job on its own, very likely you're going to get over this hurdle. It's really only in tiny exposure cases that you're likely to to be falling at that particular hurdle. You're going to be expert-led on it as well, aren't you? Because there's the question of scientific uncertainty and the potential causes and interacting causes. You're going to need your your medic to be clear on that in his report, aren't you, or her report? Yeah, you are. And it's a subject which often, quite recently, experts do not understand. Um, It's a legal principle. They will often be doing their best to look at things on balance as to what's the most likely causal outcome. But it's important, I think, to push them on cases where they're able to reach that conclusion and assess them on the but-for test with good scientific evidence and where they're pitching in the dark, where the truth is that there is scientific uncertainty as to whether that test has been fulfilled. I find a common pitfall, especially with experts, is if they haven't engaged the proper question of what is a material contribution, they'll often almost set out competing causes and use the term material contribution very quickly, when in fact they haven't considered whether or not there's sufficient uncertainty that a material contribution argument will be made out. Yeah, you're absolutely right, James, they do. It's a phrase which is bandied about by experts often without without full understanding. And I think it's one where case conference, very valuable, going through the law with them, going through the science with them, putting it to them, working out where the areas of uncertainty lie and see if you get over these these hurdles. I'm going to say that's the basics done. I don't think anything's as basic as it ever should be with material contribution. But I think now's a good time to look at the cases, Rob. Yeah, so I'll deal very briefly, James, with just three of the old cases, uh, and then we'll look at the new cases, which have caused the confusion. Bailey is the key one, Bailey and the Ministry of Defence from the Court of Appeal in 2008. I'm not going to go through that in detail, because in essence, what it says is what we've just been talking about for the last 10 minutes. It sets out the cumulative causes where they're working together and you've got scientific uncertainty, claimant succeeds in full if they can prove that more than minimal contribution. That's the essence of it. What were two further important cases in this area? So one was Williams and Bermuda Hospitals. That was 2016. It was UK Privy Council. Not technically binding in this jurisdiction, but I'd suggest with five law lords, it's very persuasive. And what this was looking at was the question of whether it was the case that the cumulative causes had to be concurrent, i.e. happening at the same time, in order for the claimant to get over the material contribution hurdle. In other words, if there were say, two causes, one which happened on one day and one which happened the next, is that gap in time sufficient that it torpedoes the material contribution doctrine effect? Uh, Well, the answer from the Privy Council is no. Cumulative causes can be successive. So as long as they're part of the same process, it doesn't matter whether they occur together or indeed 
which comes first, negligent or non-negligent. Key question is, again, are they cumulative? Are they working together in a continuous process as opposed to being the separate independent causal components that we saw in Wilshire? So the timings are relevant. The question is how they are operating. That's the key question for material contribution. And the other older case, if I can call it that, is Sido John in central Manchester uh, and Manchester Children's University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. The conclusion of the court in John was that the material contribution approach applies just as much to multiple factor cases as single agency cases. So this was to deal with a defendant argument that the Bonington castings and Bailey approach only applied where there was a single agent to cause the injury, whereas Dr. John's injury in that case was caused by multiple factors. So you had an initial head injury, negligent treatment of raised intracranial pressure, and then subsequent non-negligent post-operative infection. All of those three were operating together, cumulatively, the court found. And in that context, where there was scientific uncertainty about whether the intracranial pressure in itself would fulfil but-for causation, court again found for the claimant, pretty friendly to claimant case law, I'd suggest, on Matt Con up until recently. It doesn't matter if it's there for a single agent or multiple agency case, as long as they're working together, cumulatively, the claimant still has the option of success. So those are, you call them the old cases. What's the baseline principles in a nutshell, Rob, that we take from those cases? So the baseline principles, I would say, James, are look at where you've got your multiple causal factor cases, how they are working together. You need to, if you're going to be applying the doctrine of material contribution, they need to be working cumulatively. They need to be in conjunction, combining to have the effect which ultimately causes the claimant's injury. If it's not the case and they're independent and you don't really know which one has caused the damage and which one may have been totally irrelevant, then claim will fail, as it did in Wilshire. And the courts have been pretty generous in terms of how the two can be working together. doesn't need to be the same agency. doesn't need to be at the same time, as long as they're working together. Things then get a bit messier, don't they, with some of the more recent case law. The starting point is probably Thorley and Sanwell and West Birmingham Hospital's NHS Trust 2021 QBD decision, Rob. Yes, James. So Thorley definitely did throw a cat amongst the pigeons. I'm not going to go through the whole detail of the case because I don't think our listeners need to know every, every single intricate part of the factual scenario. It's the law that's going to be relevant for how we manage our, our case strategies. So in summary, this was a set of facts that took place in April 2005, where Clayman suffered an ischemic stroke. And as a consequence of that, he sadly went on to suffer pretty severe physical and cognitive disability. I'm not going to go into, as I say, the whole set of breach of duty allegations. Some of them were disputed, and some of them were admitted. The important causation analysis for our purposes stems from the admitted breaches. So the trust admitted that warfarin should have been provided to this man day after the surgery as opposed to later. And the question really was, if that warfarin had been provided, would he have avoided the stroke which he went on to suffer? That's it in a nutshell. Defendant denied that it was causative of the stroke, denied that material contribution could help the claimant. And the key legal issue, which was identified by the the judge in that case, is whether the material contribution doctrine, which was described as the modified test of causation, question whether it did actually modify the previous law or not, but that's another rabbit hole. But really, whether that material contribution doctrine could be applied to a case like this, where the injury was, on everybody's account, indivisible. 
on the definitions that we've just discussed. And what was controversial about this decision is the judge found that he was bound by AB and Ministry of Defence 2010 Court of Appeal. Now, we haven't touched upon that yet. It's known as the Atomic Veterans Litigation. The judge thought that 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 case meant that the doctrine of material contribution could not be applied to indivisible injuries. So very much contrary to what I've just been setting out to you uh, for the last 20 minutes. That is what that case appeared to say, the judge thought. It's a rather surprising conclusion, uh, the doctrine that material contribution could not apply to an indivisible injury. The judges say felt bound by AB and didn't think that the issue had been dealt with explicitly by the Court of Appeal or Supreme Court subsequently says to change that position. So he felt bound to say on the basis of that 2010 precedent from the Court of Appeal that indivisible injuries could not be considered in the same field as material contribution. He did say that the issue was ripe for review by the higher courts. We haven't had that review yet, have we, Rob? I don't think it's gone up to the Court of Appeal. It it hasn't. What's your views then as to where we're heading? Okay, well, I think let's just have a look at the law itself that's led up to that AB decision and what it was saying and whether the judge was in fact bound by it as he thought. So what I would say as a starting point is that the position that material contribution can't apply to indivisible injuries is, is inconsistent with Bonington itself. And in Bonington, so this is the, the guilty silica dust and the non-guilty dust, as some of us might again recall from, from law school, Lord Reed said, the disease is caused by the whole of the noxious material. And the question was whether the guilty dust had materially contributed to the disease. So there's a single tort visa, single process, with two potentially contributory causes, innocent dust and guilty dust. And it's important to understand that the harm in Bonington was viewed at the time it was decided as indivisible. I say at the time because medical science has moved on since then and actually found that this particular disease is probably a divisible condition. But that's, that's by the by, because what Lord Toulson said at the time this case was decided, and this is the bedrock from which all of the rest of it, Bailey and indeed AB, stemmed, they said in Bonington... There was no suggestion at the time of the case that pneumoconiosis was divisible, uh, meaning that the severity of the disease depended on the quantity of the dust inhaled. Lord Reed interpreted the medical evidence as meaning that the particles and the swing grinders were the cause of the entire disease. So that was Lord Toulson commenting in Williams on Bonington. And that was no bar to the operation of the material contribution approach. Um, Wasn't Bailey and MOD itself dealing with an indivisible injury? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's arguably a controversial question. My view is it clearly was dealing with an indivisible injury. And I think this is partly where some of the confusion arises. I would say that the injury in Bailey was ultimately cardiac arrest and resulting brain damage, which is what the claimant suffered in Bailey. It's worth saying that the way the Court of Appeal analysed it was that this man had become weaker and weaker due to a combination of negligent and non-negligent causal factors. And ultimately, that weakness is what led him to have cardiac arrest and brain damage. But what I would say is we should be looking in terms of the injury at the final stopping point, so the heart attack and the brain damage, not the weakness. The weakness is not the injury. And the cardiac arrest and the brain damage are not dose-related conditions. You will see commentary out there, to be fair, often from the defendant field, um, who sought to suggest that it was the weakness which led to the cardiac arrest and the brain damage, and the weakness was divisible. 
So therefore, Bailey was dealing with a divisible injury. I would suggest that that analysis confuses the cause of the injury and the injury itself. And that is where quite a lot of the confusion has come from. It's got an unusual judicial background to it as well, hasn't it, Rob? Because Bailey and MOD, Lady Justice Smith was sitting, wasn't she? But she was also involved in the Atomic Veterans. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the sort of interesting features of it. So Lady Justice Smith, one of the judges in Bailey, also sitting on, on the Atomic Veterans case. So you may say to me, if it's the same judge on both, it can't be that there's this misunderstanding that you suggest. What I'd say in response is that, that Lady Justice Smith has approached these issues differently in different cases. And it's complicated law, there's no doubt about it. But if for those out there who would suggest that Lady Justice Smith was standing by to say that material contribution can't apply to indivisible injuries in Bailey and in the Atomic Veterans case, I'd refer them to another one of her cases, so 2008 case, Dickens and O2. And what she said in that was explicitly that Bailey was a case of an indivisible injury and that in such cases where there's a material contribution, then there's no apportionment. The defendant is liable for the whole of the injury. And so she should know what they were thinking about in Bailey because she sat on Bailey and she went on to give the judgment in AB. So some judicial confusion, it's fair to say, but ultimately the judge who's given the judgment in AB, which the Thorley judge and the Davies judge, that's another recent High Court case. Davies and Primley Health NHS Foundation Trust, neutral yeah. citation 2021-169. Yeah, thank you. And that, that, that's effectively a very similar conclusion to Thorley in terms of being concerned that indivisible injuries not applicable with material contribution. They're all relying on AB. The judge in AB, what she said in AB, has said something which is completely the opposite in other cases. So that is where I suggest we get the confusion from. And it's it's important to look at the, the wealth of other case law that's led up to it. We've talked about Bonnington castings. We've talked about Bailey. There are many other instances where there's been relevant commentary on this. So another case, Seinkiewicz and Grief, So this is a 2011 case. Here's a quote from the judgment in that. This is a Supreme Court judgment. Quote is this at paragraph 90 of that judgment. Where the disease is indivisible, such as lung cancer, a defendant who's tortiously contributed to the cause of the disease will be liable in full. Where the disease is divisible, such as asbestosis, the tortfeasor will be liable in respect of a share of the disease for which he is responsible. I suggest, James, that that's exactly the introduction to the core principles which I gave at the start of this talk. It's obiter, but it's the Supreme Court, and they shared the same view in 2011 after the Atomic Veterans litigation. And there's also leading commentary in this area which supports that view. I think Professor Sarah Green, she wrote the leading textbook on causation and clinical negligence. That's been cited in a number of judgments in the last few years. I think it was cited with approval by the Privy Council and Williams itself. She does, uh, and I've yet to find a a clinical negligence textbook which cites the opposite view. Hers is, I'd suggest, the leading textbook on causation in clinical negligence. It is always the one which is cited. It was expressly approved in Williams in the Privy Council that we've already touched upon. Here's a quote from it, 2015 text. So again, considerable time after all of the decisions we've been talking about. She says, it's trite negligence law that where possible, defendants should only be held liable 
for that part of the claimant's ultimate damage to which they can be causally linked. It is equally trite that where a defendant has been found to have caused or contributed to an indivisible injury, she will be held liable for it, even though there may well have been other contributing causes. So I'm going to go out on a limb here. Is this going to be, use the analogy of Denton, are we going to be told by the Court of Appeal in a couple of years' time when it does go up that the law has always been clear, it's as you've just summarised, and we've all taken a confusing wrong turn based upon a misreading of the High Court authorities and Court of Appeal authorities to date on it? Well, that's my hope, in essence, James, that we'll get that level of clarity which re-establishes the core principles and that we get it from the Supreme Court. That would be the, the ideal outcome of this. And I don't think it would be particularly difficult for the, for the Supreme Court to do that when looking at the wealth of case law and this one judgment in AB, which is causing the confusion. As I say, in Thorley and Davies that we've talked about, they both considered that AB meant is indivisible injuries was outside the scope of material contribution. But I do think that we can reconcile AB with the weight of the case law when you look at the analysis which feeds into it. I think it all comes down to terminology. So again, Lady Justice Smith in AB, when considering Bailey, she was talking about the divisibility in relation to the weakness, as opposed to the aspiration or the cardiac arrest in this sense. So divisibility being used by her there to talk about the cause of the injury, the mechanism of it, and not the injury itself. I think that's the mistake that's been used. I think that's why her analysis appears at first glance to be inconsistent with her other sets of analysis. So I'd suggest that that's where the confusion runs from that. It's been put in commentary from Mr. Justice Swift, who said the Court of Appeal in the AB case regarded the injury in the case of Bailey as having been the claimant's weakened state, which had led to her cardiac arrest and brain damage. They regarded that injury as divisible. Yet it seems to me that the injury in Bailey was in reality the claimant's brain damage, which was indivisible. The defendant's negligence had made an unquantifiable contribution to the weakness that had led to the development of that brain damage. If that's right, the fact that the injury is indivisible does not necessarily preclude the application of Bonington principle. So I suggest that that is correct, that that is the source of the confusion. So for somebody who's coming relatively new to the subject or has to research this, the older cases... Bailey, Williams, and John. Now, in terms of the more recent cases, we've just looked at Thorley in particular. There's Davis and Frimley, which we've just touched upon as well. I also quite like the case of Leach and Northeast Ambulance Service, a 2020 case before it was on a Judge Friedman, and that concerned PTSD. And it was a delay in ambulance arriving to collect the claimant. And the claimant had come to suffer PTSD. The ambulance had been needed because the claimant had suffered an subarachnoid hemorrhage at home. And in that case, there's a question mark as to whether the claimant was always likely to have come to full-blown PTSD or whether or not it was impossible to say there was a moment in time where PTSD was triggered. And so therefore, the question was, was the delay in the ambulance getting there? sufficient to amount to a material contribution argument. And the judge in that case applied Bailey. He said, I'm unable to find on the balance of probabilities that the PTSD would have occurred in any event. 
I'm satisfied it's a case where medical science cannot establish the probability that but for the negligent failure of the ambulance to arrive before 7.33, the PDSD would not have happened. But it has been established that the contribution of the negligent failure was more than negligible. It made a material contribution to the development of the claimant's PTSD. The claimant therefore succeeds. So I, I always think, Rob, that Leach dealing with a psychiatric injury is also worth a read for those coming quite new to the cases. I agree with you. Perhaps it's, it's worth just finishing off this podcast by summarising, I suppose, where the law is at on material contribution. I think it's right to say, given Thorley and Davies, that it's in an uncertain position and we need that clarification from Court of Appeal or Supreme Court. It's important for lawyers to remember the weight of the case law explicitly endorses that the material contribution doctrine does apply to indivisible injuries. The AB case, it's a Court of Appeal authority which appears at face value to contradict it, although it can arguably be explained by confusion between the disease and the disease process uh, when thinking about what is an indivisible injury. Certainly, claimant solicitors out there, I would say, should still be pleading material contribution in cumulative cause cases where you've got that more than minimal contribution to either a divisible or indivisible injury. Clearly, if there's the scope to distinguish Thorley and Davies within the case law, then it's sensible to do so, but we shouldn't be holding back based on this, this recent confusion. Excellent. Well, thank you, Rob, for taking us through the somewhat uncertain law material contribution in a clinical negligence context. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Personal Injury Pod. In upcoming episodes, we'll be looking into the very different and often vexing question of among others fundamental dishonesty in personal injury cases. So please don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd like to find out any more about St. John's Chambers or to get in touch with us, please do go to stjohnschambers.co.uk or feel free to contact Rob and I directly. So lastly, it's a thank you from me. And thank you from me for listening.